I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Paramang people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We can make a wonderful style of Shiraz in the Barossa that you can't really make anywhere else in the world. But you know what? On the side, I was having an affair with Grenache and it was it was awesome. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Alex Head fell in love with wine whilst travelling and he's worked numerous roles in the industry ever since. It is his label Head Wines that has become synonymous with the Barossa, where he crafts age-worthy and site-specific wines. Alex Head, thanks for joining me. Hey, Shante. Great to hear your voice. Uh, pleasure to be here. It's been too long since I've seen you. How the hell are you? Very well. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm in sunny Sydney. Um, the sun's finally come out. And um, yeah, just uh, working today on wine sales and uh, getting ready for some bottling in two weeks. And yeah, got to go and pick up the boys and take them to soccer practice after this. So yeah, life's pretty good. You're certainly somebody that keeps very busy for everybody that doesn't know Headwines, and shame on you if you don't. Um, Alex works and lives out of Sydney, but then crafts his wine in um, in the Barossa. So take us back to where you got your start in wine, because it's a kind of interesting tale. Yeah, so well, we got to go back to more than half my life, I guess. Um, my, my first real taste of wine was in a wine club uh, that I belonged to at college at Sydney Uni and um, I I started um, drinking a lot and dining a lot at that, at that stage and uh, I, I quickly sort of disappeared off overseas after that and, and decided when I was on the steps of the Sacre Coeur that wine was going to be my, my thing and when I got back to Sydney I started working with some wine retailers and um, and that was a probably a five or six year stint um, with people like John Osbeeston at Ultimo Wine Centre, um, and that was a time of intense learning. Uh, and then moved on to work for Langtons, and around that time, I think I decided that I wanted to go and learn how to make wine. But um, uh, yeah, just needed. I suppose needed to be in the right frame of mind and 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 be able to disappear off to the Barossa, which is a bit of a sort of a, a mistress or a, a love of mine, I guess. Yeah, and and getting to the Barossa was was just wonderful. It was those first few years in the Barossa were really um, pretty carefree and travelling around Australia and making wine in different wineries that I held in high regard. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, pretty pretty intense sort of focus on just one thing in my life. I think I lived and breathed wine seven days a week at that, that time. And uh, if I look at myself now, I, I, I barely get a chance to because I've got a young family and um, a wife that supports supports me which is great, but um, there are so many other things happening that wine, wine seems to almost get in the way at the moment. But, um, yeah, it was, it was a really good time. I mean, that, that's sort of 15 to 20 years ago now, and um, I was perhaps a different, a different man back then. But, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Wine is incredibly immersive and it is a little bit, I often refer to it as a bit like the rabbit hole because once you start asking a few questions or your interest is peaked, it only continues on from there. But you traveled a little bit and I want to hear a little bit about the Northern Rhone and your experience there, but because I know that's special to you, but then also I want to hear about how do you get your start in somewhere like the Barossa when you've got all these family legacies, people that have owned wine for a long time when you don't live there? So tell me a bit about Northern Rome and then tell me a little bit of how you transitioned into getting your start in the Barossa. So my experience initially with the Rhone um, was a little bit of travel when I was about, when I was in my early 20s, just after university. I had no idea about Rhone wine at that stage. Um, but in visiting, it was, you know, I was on a bus and trains cruising around Europe, um, and I just, at that stage, I knew I was just interested, I was, it was just the pursuit of pleasure, so it was food and wine, and when I, when I got back to Sydney, Rhone for me was, was really just, um, the wine that I could afford, you know, Bordeaux was impossible, um, they sold it in a strange way. Burgundy was becoming too expensive. And Rhone just sort of sat with me very well, the accessibility of it and the non-snobbishness of it, I guess. But it wouldn't be t- t- till um, another c- couple of years later, I'd start to go to the Rhone Valley with importers. Uh, and one was James Johnson from World Wine Estates. And it was at that stage where I just, I mean, obviously when I was retailing, I was learning a lot about wines from winemakers that would come to visit me, but um, going there and talking to the winemakers and being in their vineyards was really, you know, in many ways, I, I remember recently being there with Tim Smith and Tim Smith and myself looked at each other and went, oh, these guys do things the opposite way to what you know, we do in the Barossa. So, so it was. It's really important for me to go to the Rhone Valley and learn what they do because you know, a lot of my brand is a bit of a nod to the Rhone and the and the past and sort of tradition, I guess. Um, but then translating that into the Barossa and what I do um, is where things get really muddled, I guess. So, so when I decided that I wanted to go to the Barossa in 2006 to make wine. One of the reasons was I could see the quality of the fruit was very high and I could see that there was a lot of old vineyards. And Barossa has so many, this sort of wealth of access to old vineyards. And I just knew that if I were going anywhere else to try to create um, this Rhone brand that I had an idea about, um, it was going to be much harder for me. What I didn't know was that in the Barossa, we have two businesses working in, in congruency with each other. And one is the growers and one is the producers. So what I didn't know at the, at the time in 2006 was that I had to start building um, a really good network there of growers 
And a little bit like if you imagine the Barossa is like a patchwork um, of kind of like Monopoly, like a Monopoly board. And you just have to go around it as many times as you can and hopefully land on the right squares and have the opportunity to work with those vineyards and those growers. So, you know, a lot of the growers are fourth, fifth generation. So no one's going to give up a great old vineyard if they're working with it. So it's just a matter of being there, working slowly, which helps. But the opportunities for new vineyard don't come along very often. But what that does is it helps you to work slowly and methodically in building the idea of how you want to present a set of wines to communicate and talk about the Barossa and its terroir and um, and what you what the winemaker believes is the most important message and ultimately how to get more pleasure to the customer I guess yeah so you know I didn't I guess I didn't really realize how important the Rhone was to me but um, every time I go back there well hopefully a few more times in the, in the next few years um, you know I'm always just looking to see still drinking you know the wines that I love and the wines that inspire me and then just going to really understand them by citing them and talking to those wine growers and hopefully just gaining those little one percenters and adding them all up and trying to improve what I can offer my customers here. Now, I mean, not only do they work with, you know, Syrah or Shiraz as you work within the Barossa in the Rhone, you also kind of modelled your business off a, a kind of negotiant style. Can you, I mean, that would make a lot of sense to, to you know, people in France, but what does that mean for Australians if they're kind of trying to understand your business? What does that negotiant style mean? Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no English translation for negotiant, but um, I was heavily inspired by some of the negotiant houses in France, and there are some really successful ones in the Rhone, one of them um, being Guigal. And I liked the way it seemed as though you could start a business like that um, without owning large swathes of land and farming them yourself. And the idea was to originally create the business that way. And there are some, there are many advantages to running a business that way. You can bring value to your customer. You can negate um, vintage variation in many ways. You can blend across, you know, by blending across sites. Uh, uh, and you can really, um, I suppose, highlight um, some great sites um, within where you work. So, um, yeah, I needed a way to get the business going. And initially, I started bartering with um, some producers and wineries in the Barossa. So, I, I had access to the market. I had some marketing skills, some sales skills, some contacts on the eastern seaboard. So I would 
help a few small brands set, setting them up for, to sell their product, getting them in contact with distributors. And in a way, they, well, they allowed me to make small parcels of wine in, in their premises. And that's how I got started because when you're 27 years old, you know, you, there's not a lot of capital behind you and I had no money and, and um, I, I just I knew what I wanted to do um, and I, I kind of gave myself five, maybe six years to get things going. So that's how, that's how it started. And then I, I just didn't really understand that that was going to be the most important thing as the business grew and, and over time that negotiant style of business um, just seemed seemed to be the best thing. And, you know, growing grapes, although now I've got a lot of experience in vineyards and I can, I can walk into a vineyard and know exactly what product is going to come out of it, um, I, I'm probably not the greatest gardener. Um, if you come to my garden in Sydney, you'll see that everything's, you know, wilted and half-cooked and dried and dead. So, um, you know, what what's really important there is knowing what you're good at and really focusing on that. And I, I figured out that I was good at communicating with these growers um, growers are not good at communicating, by the way. Um, and I was able to translate a story to my customers through these growers and and blend together. You know, I, I knew I was good at blending um, and I knew that I was good at finding balance in wines. And I knew that I, I could offer my customers something very different, unique, but in time would be sought after. Um, because when I started making wine in the Barossa, there was a small number of people interested in, um, you know, earlier, relatively earlier picked styles of the time and, you know, wines with a bit more, a whole bunch, lower alcohol. Um, I, had, I had a small group of, of followers and just grew, grew that very slowly as I grew in access to to great vineyards, it's taken me it's taken me twelve years to get access to what I would call very old established Shiraz vines within the Barossa, um, and you know that like it's 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 been a long process and it's costly, um, but um, you know, the dream of making Grand Vin Shiraz in the Barossa is 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 um, is getting closer, you know. It's a big dream, but it's a great dream. Yeah, I've got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, someone think- asked me the other day, what would you do if you weren't making wine? Honestly, I, I nearly – my head nearly exploded. I, I had no idea. I, yeah, coffee? I don't know. Shivers. <laughs> I think that, you know, we don't often talk about, um, like you said, how people do get started and you're incredibly patient person and also willing to do the hard yards, which is 
you know, at the core of a negotiant or, or somebody that has great relationships. And I think that that's a real testament to you because you were willing to spend the time to ask the right people the questions and to, you know, stick around and develop these relationships so that you can then work with these growers. And and like I said, we don't always talk about the fact that, you know, a lot of wineries bring in more juice than what they can make into their label. And it's not always because they don't want that particular plot or they don't want that particular bin of grapes it might just have to do with that it doesn't suit their portfolio and so they on sell wines but it's always about having a good relationship because if they don't like you they're not going to give it to you you're in trouble yeah you're in big trouble yeah i've certainly learned the hard way a few times you know i've ruined a few relationships um um you know trying to trying to get growers to do what you need them to do, you know, there's really only one thing that, that's going to help and that's money. Um, so, yeah, there's a real balance there. And some of my growers drink wine and some of them don't. And, you know, I, I, have, to, I have to invest in them and I have to, n- not in their vineyards, I have to invest in them personally and I have to understand what makes them tick and I have to, you know, it's kind of like family members. They are family members. And, you know, at the moment there's 25 of them. And um, and I, but I also need that many people around me. I also, I also need to have a community around me. I've realized that over time. Um, and that could be because I work alone in an office and uh, – <laughs> I don't employ anyone really, um, so you know I just love having all these other people in my life, um, and I've got one grower that I think I talk to every second day, which is a bit weird. So yeah, yeah, very lucky. But I mean, yeah, I was just thinking about what you said before, and that you know this long, slow process. I think, which is weird for me because as a young man, I was in such a hurry. Um, I, I don't know if you know that, but I had an illness which sort of made me think pretty hard about what I was doing with my life pretty early on. And the weird thing to plug into the side of that is I, I really had no interest in money at all um, when I was younger. And I think I got that through my father who's – He's a priest and an academic and thank God mum had an eye for detail and was interested in finer things because I think that's helped me a bit with wine. But, yeah, I, I, I really discovered in the first 10 years of making wine that, you, you know, you, you, you couldn't even be interested in money. It's certainly not a business model where, you know, where you're going to be um, – burning hundred dollar bills to keep you warm you know it's just it's just uh it it, you gotta love wine you gotta be mad crazy about um just pleasure and increasing pleasure and you know every every vintage trying to produce the best wine possible um um yeah because (laughs) Gee, it, it is a long, slow journey. So, yeah, you get one, one shot a year, you know, to make wine. And, 
most people do their job every day, but um, there's really only a six to eight week period where I'm uh, I get a chance to to do to do that very thing. I actually I pulled out a quote that I found snooping into your life, um, and that was that one time one time you said the thirst for wine knowledge is a journey, one that I travel because it can never end, and I love that sentiment. I think it says so much about you because it really kind of captures this unobtainable pursuit of passion, the mystique of wine, where it's it's not something to uh, like hold and obtain. It's kind of got to be that you're willing to go on the journey and, and never kind of reach a destination, and that's the beauty of it. And I, I wish I had that quote when I worked with a group of sommeliers because I think when you're frustrated and you're trying to learn more about wine and you just realize it's never going to end, you're never going to know it all, I actually think that that's letting go is the beauty of that. So I think you put that so beautifully. Yeah, I, perhaps there was a little more in my past just to do with thinking about thinking about death as a young man and my father being quite my family being quite religious um thinking about the afterlife and and i remember when i was about 29 really thinking that my afterlife was going to be the wine that i made and that it lived on in bottle and i thought well if i can make a 50 year wine you know maybe some people down the lineage will say, oh, I remember that. Remember Alex Head? Oh, he made these wines, you know. And some people are happy with, oh, I saw some bloke buying my wine in a bottle shop and that made me feel special. Um, That's wonderful. But I'd I'd really like to think that I don't, I'm not just going to disappear into dust and, and dirt and that I actually left something important behind. Now, my, my two boys, you know, Xavier and Thomas, they're five and seven. I, I at least want to also give them the opportunity to, um, to take over head wines. Now, <clears throat> it's a long way away, but, um, but yeah, I, I guess, I guess um, a lot of it's to do with the journey never ending, you know, like how, how can I, how can I, keep it going I guess um, mm. yeah. it's about just trying to make sense of isn't it what what we're on this planet for and yeah yeah what do we do with our time and and I I think it's great to be always thinking about what we leave behind whether it be in someone's memory or like you said in something tangible where you know who knows later down the track you know someone you might have a group of you know, sommeliers or Len Evans scholars opening your wine and drinking it and marveling over how you made that happen. And I think that that's such a lovely way to be remembered. I want to talk a little bit about your brand because you are a deep thinker and you think a lot about um, what you do on all levels. Um, what I've you know, noticed over the time I've worked with your wines is your communication in how you tell a story. And you've always used wine names like the blonde, the contrarian, the brunette, almost as characters to help communicate the story of kind of what's in the bottle. Where does that come from? Because if anybody says to a sommelier a little bit about, um, you know, coat roti and, you know, the coat blonde, we get it straight away. But to everybody else, 
How have you made that linkage between the two? Yeah, well, it's just, it's, you, you've got to be able to communicate a story. And what, what I realized early on through my retailing days was to, to get people interested in your wine and your product, you know, they're not really. They do other things. They're not as passionate as you about wine, but they want to support you and they want to be able to relate to that story. So, you know, early on I, I looked at, I, I also believe passionately in appellation systems and I, it irks me that Australia still sells brand. Like it kills me every day. Anyway, so what I what I really wanted to do was was get something that was really tangible and grabbable by consumers. I needed a way for them to be able to relate to the wine, but not because of how it tasted initially or what it, you know, what it smelt like or, you know, there's, there's a lot of wine out there. But I needed people to say, well, I am a blonde or I am a brunette or I am a contrarian. Why don't I give that a go? When you're looking on a wine list, there's so many wines and so many names and and I just I just needed, you know, numbers and colours. Numbers are taken. Colours was a bit difficult, but hair colours seemed to be the next, you know, one one of the things that I could get people to grab onto. And uh, contrarian was just, you know, blonde and brunette was to do obviously to do with Coat Roti. I just loved that story. I fell in love with that story so long ago, twenty years ago. Um, and, you know, in fact, that's one of the reasons, one of the things that I first did when I got to the Barossa, which was look for uh, vineyards that could give me the, the characteristics of the blonde and the brunette. So, but yeah, and contrarian, well, that was just that, you know, I wanted to do something for myself so that down the track, um, when my when I'd realised that I was never going to make Coat Rosie in the Barossa and I was making what was seen as much more traditional Barossan wine, the contrarian would always stay as a little bit of my, my quirkiness and what I wanted to do in the Barossa, which was just show that winemaking is a choice, you know, that the decisions we make, like... You know, <clears throat> there's a, a thousand decisions a winemaker makes and, um, you know, if you really want to, you can make wine taste almost any way you want. Um, you don't have to be a traditionalist. You don't have to make wine that, you know, a certain way. You can you can do whatever you want. And the contrarian just is, you know, keeps me inspired and keeps me interested in change and the climate and you know keeps me dialed in on vineyard sites and clones and pruning and you know really pushing boundaries about what we can achieve um with our with our wines in the barossa so so yeah naming is naming is, is important because um uh yeah we like yeah just going back to that point people just aren't as interested as we think they are 
you know, as an industry person, and we have to bring them in easy in an, in a in a comfortable way. Um, and those characters and words and names just really help them. I used to even, you know, put the sites on the labels. But um, it's just too much for consumers. Like I used to put Stonewell and Mopper and Marananga and McCulter and Krondorf and all these, you know, single um, parishes or um, on on the labels. But in the end, um, it just it it wasn't that important to them. But I tell you what, blonde, brunette, contrarian, that is important to people. I think. It really is. And I think what's been amazing over the time that I've known you is how adaptable you are to um, evolving your brand and just making those decisions of, I've all, you know, I used to do this, but now I'm going to do this because I'm listening to what the people want. I know I've got a great following and I think that we can let that go. And I think that that must be really quite difficult because when you do have a good following like you do, you don't want to um, marginalise anyone or, or miss out on those opportunities if, if you are being successful. And But you've always listened. And I think that maybe your history with um, working at Langton's and, and working, um, importing and doing all the things that you've done have added your understanding of... Of the consumer. Of yeah. the consumer, exactly. So, um, but tell me a little bit about, because you do work in the Barossa GI You've worked in the Barossa Valley. I think now you're predominantly Eden Valley, or I thought I think you are, aren't you? Tell me how you ex, um, explain the differences between those few sites, or, or, or how would you get wrap someone's head around the Barossa Valley, Eden Valley, High Eden? Um, how would you do that? Yeah, well, with the, well, obviously the Barossa consists of Eden Valley and Barossa Valley. And within Eden Valley, there's also High Eden. And um, you probably have to look at the rainfall starts in High Eden, runs north along Eden Valley, and then splits into the Barossa Valley at Light Pass, and then snakes south in the Barossa Valley and then out to the ocean. So that's the first really important structure to understand where the water moves. Now the other really, well, the next really important thing is the Stockwell Fault runs through um, the middle of the Barossa Valley and the Eden Valley running north-south. And that, if you follow that further north, it goes to Clare Valley. And if you go south, it goes through Adelaide Hills and then through McLaren Vale and then down to Kangaroo Island. Now, without that fault, I wouldn't be talking to you today. So that's what creates a lot of the unique aspects, soil profiles, rock, um, you know, water movements. And another really, another interesting thing to note is Barossa Valley is a drowned river valley and it has a deep aquifer which runs from north to south. And a lot of old vineyards were planted and survived along this North Para River. And uh, you'll find a lot of those old vineyards uh, close to, to where the river is. And a lot of the older vineyards are also in sandier soils, but that's another, that's another story. So 
if you look at the two um, major areas, Eden Valley and Barossa Valley, there's another big distinction. Um, Eden Valley, the rock comes from under the earth, so it's granite, essentially. Um, de a lot of decomposed granite and gives a very particular style of Shiraz. And it's at altitude as well, so it's probably a couple of degrees cooler. But when you move down into the Barossa Valley, it's all ocean-derived rock, so limestone and ironstone. And ironstone is actually a form of limestone, but it's got iron in it. Now, <clears throat> you've got a lot of clays, sand, uh, sand limestone in the Barossa Valley, and what that does it gives wines that are um, have a lot more, um, I suppose, ex extraction. You get uh, a lot more uh, skin tannin. Um, you tend to get this sort of sweeter profile of fruit. And that clay um, that's in the Barossa Valley just tends, just doesn't give up the water to the vine as much. So you get these really intense high alcohol, you know, big extract, very ripe um, styles of wine um, that consumers absolutely adore and winemakers adore too. But then when you're in the Eden Valley, that granite just works in a completely different manner with, with the wine. So the wines tend to be much more linear. Uh, they don't have that flesh on them. Um, they have this really uh, discernible tannin, square tannin profile and um, you know you'll note that the Rhone Valley is pretty much granite so you know wines of the Rhone Rhone Valley Shiraz in particular has a real affinity with um, the Shiraz from Eden Valley and that's probably why over the last 10 years naturally um, my vineyard sources have moved towards the Eden Valley because, you know, that's what I was originally interested in. But in saying that, you know, we have, you know, 10 Grenache and Mataro vineyards in the Barossa Valley and quite a few other small Shiraz vineyards that we source from. So, so it's not just cut and dry. It's, 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 it's infinitely more, more complex. But that's a really good way to describe um, the Barossa and the two really interesting, unique um, parts within it. Um, and, yeah, starting with the way the water moves and then the fact that Eden Valley is granitic and um, the Barossa Valley is sort of ocean-derived limestone and, and ironstone. Mm. I knew you were going to be able to say that in so much of a poetic and clear way. And it's exactly why I asked you the question, because I thought if anyone takes something away from this, it they will definitely be able to have a grasp or a foothold onto um, the two regions. So thank you so much for that. I also, I wanted to talk to you a little bit. I've got, I mean, I could talk to you all day, so I had to limit it, but um, I wanted to talk a little bit about Grenache because you have championed Grenache for years and years now. And finally, finally, we are starting to see it pay off where people uh, can't get enough. But tell me a little bit about your love affair for Grenache. 
Yeah, well, let's. I mean, we can go back to um, we can go back to two thousand and six. I met a I met a young man um, called Marco Cirillo, and he owned a vineyard that was planted in around eighteen fifty in the Barossa on sand, and I saw some similarities with that vineyard and and a, another famous. Um, um, winery in Chateauneuf de Pape called Rias, and I just loved these old Grenache vineyards we had in the Brossa. And in many late night conversations in the winery with Marco, uh, we would talk about why Grenache was not the Barossa's premier variety. And I got to tell you, I mean, I've tried a lot, <laughs> tried so many vineyards and varieties in the Barossa, and you know, Grenache just goes so well. It's such a powerhouse of a, of a variety, and it just eats up the the new um, uh, climate that we have, uh, warmer climate, I would say. And um, you know, as the years went by after two thousand and nine, you know, I just, I just. I always loved drinking Grenache. I always loved um, the Grenache vineyards in the Barossa. Um, and even though I started my business and based it around Shiraz, um, Grenache was something that I could just sit alongside until I could convince people that they were they were missing out on something. You know, they were, you know, all of the big companies had spent so much time, energy, money marketing Shiraz because it's easy to it's mechanically it's easy to grow it's cheap to grow um, we can make a wonderful style of Shiraz in the Barossa that you, you can't really make anywhere else in the world but you know what on the side I was having an affair with Grenache and it was it was awesome like I just anyway so <clears throat> I, I started labeling it pretty simply old vine Grenache started working with some of Marco's fruit, then started to source some other older Grenache vineyards. And, you know, I could get access to them and I just couldn't believe it. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't paying a lot of money um, and I could get access to sort of 60, 70, 80-year-old fine material. Of course, you can't do it these days, um, but it's all, it's all sewn up. But, but back then, you know, I, you know, I was working with um, the Alkina Vineyard, or well, it's now owned by Alkina. You know, my a lot of my old vine Grenaches um, came from that site in Grenock. Um, still working with one in Crondorf that I've been working with for ten years now. Um, some hundred-year-old stuff just up the road, uh, which is now um, owned by um, Brett Grokey um, from Eparosa. And uh, look, Stone Garden, I was invited to work with Stone Garden in 2013. We've been making a $100 Ancestor Vine Grenache for 10 years now. Um, you know, Grenache, you know, we probably, if you start to look at scores, if you start to look deeply into scores from wine writers around the world, you, you just start to see that the Grenaches are starting to do better than the Shirazes. So, you know, this Grenache is, is finally having its moment in the sun. 
and um, n- not, you know, we've had to do a lot of work. Um, but I definitely remember there was a point in 2014, I remember Brussels Wine Show, you know, I'd, I'd bought these old Fugers off Tyrrells, I'd shipped them down to the Barossa, I'd opened them up, you know, scraped them out, dried them, fermented Shiraz in them um, for a year or two and then made whole bunchy early picks Grenache, put it in, you know, from 80-year-old vineyard, put it in this big old Fudra, chucked it in the Barossa wine show and won the trophy. And that moment I knew in uh, 2014, 2015, that um, Grenache was going to happen. You know, it, it was on. And, um, and it's just, you, you know, you watch it in the press, you see, you see the papers and you see the journalists and, you know, the wine mags and the articles online and it's happening right now and it's so exciting. And I, I've, I've got to say, you know, <clears throat> to those guys 10 plus years ago, the, the Marco Cirillos and the Stephen Panels and the, you know, the guys that really pushed it, hats off and uh, you, you did the work and, you know, some they're the guys that need a big hug because, um, cause, uh, yeah, they laid a great foundation for um, – for what Grenache is today in Australia. And it's going to make, it's going to help everyone out. It's going to help the industry out, especially because we're in such, you know, difficult times at the moment. So, so here's, here's to Grenache, eh? Absolutely. You've been saying it for a long time and I've been agreeing with yeah. you for a long time. Uh, <laughs> but you do make some absolutely spectacular wines and like i said your ancestor vine grenache and mataro i have to say that i think you've still got some magnums left of that 2015 which is an absolute showstopper but you've been just make some sensational wines and and you're right but i think even like you said in hard times grenache still you know for the for the pennies that you pay on all levels just really delivers and uh, like you said in hard times right now drink Grenache because, you know, even even those, you know, we I don't want to plug Marco Sorello's wines, but I kind of do as well because he's a legend. But, you know, he's Vincent Grenache. What is it, 14 bucks? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> um, but I wanted to say, you know, you're really quite active on social media and you really put yourself out there to give kind of candid updates on Instagram and tell people what, what you're doing. I think it's a huge part of your brand because people connect to you and they connect with what's happening with you. And, and, you know, I think out of so many winemakers out there, your, you know, the stone cellar or your, your wine club, you really give a lot back to the people that are loyal to you. And like you said, with what's happening, you know, with the changes you're making, the field blends that you're doing, whatever it is, you're always very active. And I think that, you know, if someone signs up, which they should do to your, to your wine club, um, and, and follow you on Instagram because. Yeah. And Insta's free. Insta's free. Yeah. We, we'd like to put up as many videos as we can. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's really important to, to tell the truth. I'm, one of the reasons why I wanted to start Head Wines was because I was selling wine through other people's other people's wine through their stories, and I just needed to understand the truth behind it all, and I wanted to go and figure it out for myself. And it's really important part of my brand to to have no 
no BS, you know, and to tell, to really get back to the source, be in the vineyards, talk about the sites, talk about what we're doing and give people the opportunity because, you know, there's a lot of uh, corporate nonsense and, you know, crazy winemaking going on and, you know, we need... I had a bit of a whinge before about brand and yes, I've got a brand, but gee, you know, we, we have to talk about where we're making wine and how we make it and the ingredients we're putting into it and, and, um, and be honest about, you know, the, the struggles of making wine. Like it's not an easy industry to be in and it's, it's hard work. It can be hard on families, physical health, mental health, um, so a bit of honesty doesn't go astray and uh, hopefully hopefully, people appreciate that. They, they definitely do, that's, that's for sure. Alex, I'm curious to know if we had to be really brutal and only ask you to drink three beverages for the rest of your life, <laughs> oh, what are they going to be? What are they going to be? Well, um, well, there's so many, I'm sorry. Uh, um, there are there are probably three wines that have been really important in my life that I've drunk before with close friends, and they've each got a story. I'll try and keep them really short. Um, one was a 1990 Rias, and John Osbeston from Ultimo Wine Centre, who was a great friend of mine and gave me my sort of first real job in the wine industry, I guess you'd say. Um, when I, I had a, I had um, cancer in 2000, 2001 uh, for a couple of years and I remember John, or John came, I was working for him at the time, he said, when you get better, we're going to drink a bottle of 1990 rice. Mm. And we went out to a restaurant at Coco, uh, Co- Coco Roco. Anyway, it was a restaurant in Sydney and it, it doesn't exist anymore. I think it only existed for a few months because someone gave it a bad review. And Anyway, but I remember going to the restaurant and drinking that wine and um, I think my head exploded. Like I, I, I just, I never tasted anything like it. I never smelled anything like it. And um, I remember it that was one of the first moments where I was like, I have to understand what is going on here. Then, uh, so that's definitely one. I can have a case of that, thank you. If you can deliver it to my house, that'd be good. <laughs> if only I could. Yeah. Uh, the other was um, um, 78 La Chapelle um, from Hermitage. And myself and two good friends, Chris Tyrrell and, and another good friend of mine, Tom McKellar, we bought a bottle. Because at the time, I thought it was cheap. It was about $900. It was ridiculously cheap. Anyway, we drank that bottle of wine and I, I, I was able to do a bit of research into the wine and it had a little bit of whole bunch in it, like the 90 Rice had a little bit of whole bunch in it. And I think they were buying, possibly buying some fruit from Clap uh, or some finished wine from Clap back in the day. And I was fascinated with the further I sort of, digged into that wine, um, the more I sort of found that 
that wine also had some whole bunch in it, which is why I really enjoyed it. Same as the 90 Rias, which is 100% whole bunch. And the final one was the 90 that I'd like to drink is the 90 de Vogue uh, Muzini. And I bought a few bottles of that back when, you know, before Burgundy just went mad. And I, I probably only paid $500 a bottle. And I bought a couple of bottles and I drank them over a few years. And I think that was the last vintage. I really enjoyed that that wine in particular because I picked up that there was some whole bunch wine making in it. Um, so I guess there's a theme there, um, <laughs> those three wines. I just love what stems bring to wine. Um, and it's not just a simple, you know, stem flavour or stem tannin. It's probably the the way in which the ferment um, the ferment characteristics can happen and what they bring to the wine as well. So, yeah, those those three wines, um, you can't change the vintage. I'll take a magnum of each and, um, yeah, and uh, come and join me at the table on the desert island and uh, you can stay for a while. Well, if with those three wines, happy, very, very happy to. I'd be even in my rowboat. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I think there's a combined value, these street value these days of about 10 grand. But, uh, Absolutely. We'd have to, yeah, we would definitely have to. Um, yeah. Poor Soms today. They could never afford to taste those wines. Like I just, I just feel sorry for people these days, you know. <laughs> and I think because I'm a sharer, perhaps oversharer, um, you know, I, I just I, – I was so lucky to be able to drink those wines, you know, particularly probably in their in – their, at their peak, you know. So, yeah. Look, yeah. I think, you know, you like you said, those wine moments, they transcend a beverage. It becomes a total experience. And like you said, a memory that you can recall like straight back and you recall flavour and that is the magic of – you know, essentially this grape juice that, that you make, you know, and um, we're really lucky to, I think, have fallen down the rabbit hole and to have that um, passion for something and to appreciate it the way we do. The senses. Yeah. Yep. We'd have a lot more money if we, uh, if we didn't, but. Um, what, who ca- I don't care about money. Don't tell my wife. <laughs> you said that. You said that. You've got more important things going on. Well, Alex, it's been such a pleasure to chat to you. It always is. I still have some really special bottles of um, some of your Shiraz and Grenache you gifted to me that I will open the next time I see you. I've popped them under the house for um, not for when you die <laughs> and, and we look back on life, <laughs> but after baby and uh, hopefully we can have a sip of something soon. But Thank you so much for spending the time with me. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been the best. Yep. Love your work, Shante. Well done. Awesome. Cheers to you, Alex. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.